Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Mahmoud Taha, professor, regents lecturer, and chair of the Department of Civil Engineering at the University of New Mexico. Mahmoud is an expert on many things related to material science, but today I'll ask him about cement, which he calls the magic glue of construction. We'll focus on the greenhouse gas footprint of cement, options for reducing that footprint, and how the use of new materials might affect the cost and performance of cement. We'll also touch on government policies that can help spur innovation and speed deployment. Stay with us. Okay, Mahmoud Taha from the University of New Mexico. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. It's a real privilege to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. So, Mahmoud, we're going to talk today about cement making, and in particular, the possibility of low carbon emissions cement. But before we do that, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on related topics. So can you tell us how you got interested in working on environmentally friendly cement? Well, uh, thank you, Daniel, again, uh, for the invitation and for being here. Um, um, well, I, I need to say, you know, that um, I'm a bridge engineer by training. Um, I'm a professor at the university. I've uh, most of my career have been working on cement, concrete, polymers, and related things. Um, but I, I'm, I'm as of my bringing as um, a professional, I'm not a, I wouldn't call myself an environmentalist. You know, uh, I always was interested in, of course, whenever we produce things, to have them environmental friendly, uh, making sure we produce sustainable structures and things like this. Um, so um, I actually grew up in Cairo, Egypt, uh, where 20 million people live, and uh, 25 years ago before I moved to North America. Uh, so I, I, the issue of environmental concerns 25 years ago and through the time wasn't that as it is today. Um, I would say the, the key uh, change to my vision to the topic started um, a few years ago. Uh, especially more, uh, you know, um, impactful when visiting southern Colorado. You know, I live in New Mexico, and um, I live. I, I visited southern Colorado a few times. My my wife is from South Colorado, and we go for family visits. And um, usually, when I visit Colorado before, um, the big difference between Colorado and New Mexico um, was the you know the forests and the uh, very green areas. Um, and as you live in the last few years, as you visit, you, you see that you're losing this. Uh, there is more um, of the, uh, um, you know, things are getting to be a high desert. Uh, there is less water. There is less uh, snow. And uh, with these changes, you start uh, feeling, oh, you know, it's it's uh, it's in my backyard. It's it's not something I'm just reading in the news. or um, So, so that, that actually changed a lot of my a view of things and, um, and then it comes opportunities through uh, work with colleagues uh, of uh, looking at environmental friendly materials and and you feel it more satisfactory because again there is a, a personal um, reflection I personally have seeing the changes happening in New Mexico and in Colorado and in many places and in, in beloved places that we I enjoyed visiting that uh, see now fires and uh, hurricanes and things like that yeah yeah, well, that's really interesting. It makes a lot of sense. And um, yeah, I think many of us are, are seeing 
changes like that play out in our lives and in the places that we love. Um, but let's talk now about uh, cement. So uh, I'm hoping we can start with the very basics. Cement is one of the most widely used materials in the world. And yet, speaking for myself, before you know, starting to look into this topic a few months ago, uh, I didn't really know how it was made. Uh, I imagine many of our listeners don't know much about how it's made. So can you give us a really quick primer about how most cement currently gets produced? Yeah, well, cement is uh, the, uh, the, the the magic glue we use in construction. Um, so how it's made is, is simple. Basically, uh, make, we mix uh, silica sand uh, with limestone, and uh, we mix them at very high temperature. And when we say very high, I'm talking about 14, 1500 degrees Celsius. Uh, that's about 2500 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's, it's quite a very high temperature. We mix them. Uh, at this temperature, uh, we grind them together and we produce that uh, material that is um, be, make the, the core of that magic glue that's called clinker. Uh, and that material basically is that the material, whenever you add water to it, it makes the rock-like material, that's the concrete or the hardened cement. Um, we basically add to this material only these two materials, as I said, the silica and limestone, um, and what happens is that actually limestone at very high temperature get calcined or basically makes lime. Uh, and then the lime reacts with the silica and it makes this uh, clinker material. We just add to them after this a little bit of gypsum uh, just to get the reaction to be a little slow so that when you add water to cement, it doesn't harden immediately. But that, that's very much what it is. It is um, uh, the um, lime, limestone and silica uh, together in very high temperature. And uh, the process we call uh, of making the lime is we call it calcination. And that's actually where most of the carbon dioxide goes out uh, because limestone is calcium carbonate and you make from it lime, which is calcium oxide. Right. So can you say a little bit more about that, about you know where exactly in the process the CO2 emissions come from? You mentioned the very high heat, so obviously there's got to be some fuel combustion, I would imagine, that's involved in that. And then the calcination process as well. Can you help us understand kind of the ratio of where the CO2 emissions are coming in particular? Yeah, well, um, cement production is actually known today to be one of the, um, the very highly polluting sources uh, polluting in the sense of uh, emission of CO2, uh, there is about 8 to 10% of the CO2 we emit, um, you know, from industrial resources or in general to the atmosphere, 8 to 10% is coming from cement manufacturing. Uh, so it's quite a high amount of carbon dioxide. And uh, as you said, you know, part of it comes from the uh, calcination. It's actually about 50% of it comes from the calcination, uh, which is... Um, you know, it's it's a big number, and it can tell you right away that to actually reduce that in the as we, you know as we would think, um, you will need not to calcine, yeah, because fifty percent comes from just making the limestone to lime. Uh, about forty percent comes to from the um, you know making the uh, high temperature, uh, burning fuel to make uh, high temperature, which is considerably high temperature, as I said, it's about 1500 degrees Celsius. And so that's a large amount of very high temperature. And that takes a lot of fuel and a very large amount of CO2. And another 10% comes from other things like, for example, transportation of the material, because you don't usually have the cement manufacturing at the same location you have the raw materials. But the most of the CO2 emissions comes from 
uh, the calcination and from burning fuel to make cement. Mm-hmm. And I imagine around the world, there are different fuels that are used in different parts of the world, which sort of brings me to the next question, which is, um, can you help us understand kind of where the largest producers and consumers of cement are, uh, geographically speaking? And also, it, it, I'm wondering if there's widespread international trade of cement the way that there's widespread international trade of, uh, let's say, uh, petroleum products. There is. The, the, the largest amount of production in cement worldwide is in China. And China produces about 50% of the world cement. Um, but, you know, not all of it is used in China. So, considerable amount that's produced in China but used elsewhere. Um, I would say close to 25-30% is produced in many developed areas like uh, the United States, uh, Europe, and India. Um, so they produce close to 25-30%, but of course, in some many cases, this is not enough. So the China is representing, you know, a good source of the cement for them. And the rest is the other 20% is uh, world production worldwide. Um, with the development, with the fact that, you know, a, a huge amount of development happening in developing countries, um, they don't produce as much cement uh, to make this development. So a lot of the uh, uh, cement produced in China and in India and other places goes to developing countries. So, of course, there is a big international trade uh, of cement. Um, but be, so, and in my opinion, we cannot blame the producer, you know, only because the fact that uh, China is producing 50% does not mean, you know, it's, uh, of course, the pollution is happening a lot of it during production, but there is a, a, a worldwide demand. On the material and that's like anything else you know um so uh, worldwide it is being used it's not only the 50 percent is not only used in china right great those are great points and yeah i mean i'll just point listeners to there, there's a large body of research out there on sort of estimating emissions on a production basis which is you know where are fuels consumed and where do emissions occur versus a consumption basis which is where do the end use products end up whether that's cement or uh you know toys that uh, that our kids play with or televisions or anything else that's correct uh, yeah that's correct. they come up you, you see very different answers there um so let's move on now from the very basics of cement and talk a little bit more about some of the more environmentally friendly processes that you've become more interested in so Obviously, there's a lot of interest in trying to reduce carbon dioxide emissions from the cement making process. Can you give us a, a brief overview, again, for the non-expert, of what some of those major options are, uh, including the use of alternative materials to the silica and limestone that are so commonly used today? So the, the you know, the, the alternatives are, if, if we think about, you know, um, 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 reducing the large, uh, the 8% of carbon dioxide that we emit to the atmosphere, the reduction can happen by two basic ways, and that's what worldwide the efforts are. Uh, number one is, uh, you know, make more efficient use of the cementing concrete. In other words, that if you are using a specific amount of cement in producing, you know, a cubic yard of concrete, people say, can you use less cement to make the same cubic yard? Um, and there is, and actually there has been research in this area since, I would say, the 1970s, uh, with using materials known as bosolons. And uh, they, just for you to know, the bosolons stem from the idea of the volcanic ash, the Romans built uh, years ago, hundreds of years ago, with the volcanic ash. 
Uh, so um, the basalons are some of it are natural materials that are very uh, highly rich in silica. When you add to them water, they react like cement, but they take a much longer time uh, to build their, their strength and their, you know, integrity. Uh, so there's been work since the 1970s on replacing uh, cement in concrete, in the typical concrete we use in uh, driveways and highways and bridges and everywhere with uh, uh, bozolan materials. And some of these bozolan materials actually are uh, waste materials coming from industrial plants like uh, fly ash come from the coal uh, industry from the power plants. Uh, there is a, a silica fume that comes from the iron industry. So all of these are waste materials. So it's uses good for the environment. And they are very high rich in, the, in silica. And when you add them to the cement, they act like cement. But they, again, they do not provide the same strength quickly. Uh, so this is one way, is to reduce the cement. And I think we, we the, and I'm talked by we as the research community worldwide have cut a good shot in this you know they, we did a lot of work on this and people for years uh, did this and we can replace actually 25 to 30 percent of the cement in the concrete or maybe more uh, with uh, those materials uh, there is other materials that is uh, more recent that's called for example the geopolymers uh, these are uh, silica materials you can activate with uh, using uh, hydrox the sodium hydroxyls um, they can be used uh, to replace Barton cement. Uh, there is special types of cement like magnesium cement, sulfoaluminate cements. The, the issue with those uh, other products, um, the alternative cement is they are not as mature in the market like uh, Portland cement. Um, but they, there is, they can be used, you know, and they can be expand, expansion in their use to replace cement. So that's, that's our first way is to actually use less cement in the concrete and use some of those alternative cements. Another way is to actually reduce the amount of the material that gets you a lot of the carbon dioxide when you are making cement. So another way is that if we have a specific percentage of the clinker, the material we said that we calcine the limestone to produce and uh, we make through the grinding with the silica, this material is the, the, the basic responsible material for the large emission that we need all the temperature to produce. So if we can produce cement with less materials, through uh, mixing some of uh, the, um, the uh, supplementary materials, like as I said, fly ash or slag with the cement during production, that's another way, is produce cement that has less of the effective material that results in the large emission of CO2. Uh, Canada has a very pioneer work in this and they produce uh, what we call as slag cement um, and uh, there's other countries as well but that was very early since uh, early 2000 they produce uh, cement that has a considerable percentage of it as slag um, and it works well um, uh, for the for different construction purposes so so these are the two basic ways uh, of for reducing the uh, the co2 emission in cement that's really interesting and one of the questions that came to my mind as you were just answering that is we did an episode a few weeks ago on um, low carbon steel making. And one of the topics that our guest Chris Patai mentioned was recycling steel and how uh, steel recycling could be a really useful way of reducing, uh, you know, the, the production of virgin steel. Is there anything equivalent uh, for cement? Is there large scale cement recycling um, that takes place today? There is. There is large... Uh, let me say the, the idea is there, 
the amount of recycled cement and concrete is not um, is not at the scale necessarily, you know, because we're talking about 8% uh, production of CO2. To make a dent in that, you have to have a significant amount of recycling. Yeah, uh, what is common today or happening and happening at a good scale in many places worldwide is the recycling of the uh, aggregate, you know, the gravel, the sand that is used in concrete. So we used concrete, old concrete, we can recycle it to make uh, the new concrete. But cement recycling hasn't been uh, that uh, common or that large uh, volume to allow it to make again a main effect. But other effort actually uh, also people did, um, should talk, say, is that uh, for the cement production, is changing the type of fuel, you know. So because we talked about that the, the, the CO2 comes part of it of the, of the, because of the high temperature you need. So, and mostly it's coal that is used on it or petroleum resources. So to one, one way to reduce this is to actually use alternative materials to or alternative fuel. People for a while use the tires, for example, recycled tires. Um, there are research done on using uh, recycled papers, recycled other materials to actually achieve the high temperature without resulting in the same amount of carbon dioxide being emitted. Very nice uh, initiative um, was done in Brazil uh, with using biomass. Uh, so basically this material when you burn it because there is a considerable amount of CO2 already done from the atmosphere to produce the you know the biomaterials um, then burning it does not emit additional CO2 to the atmosphere. So biomass uh, have been very successfully used in Brazil and, and in other places to produce cement that has a lower uh, emission of CO2, uh, but in the meantime still can produce at that high temperature. Got it. That's really interesting. And then w we could, of course, get into the discussion about carbon capture and sequestration, which is another uh, you know a pathway uh, for reducing emissions. But um, but let's let's go on now. And I wanted to ask you about one of the issues you raised just a moment ago, which is about you know the potential trade offs between reducing CO two emissions and affecting the quality of the product itself. So you know you mentioned the um, uh, the, the time it might take uh, for some alternative materials to, to be used effectively relative to gypsum or um, some of these other materials. And I'm totally out of my depth here, so I apologize if I'm <laughs> mangling okay. any of the technicalities. But um, can you just give us a, an overview of what some of the trade-offs might be between using new materials or other techniques to reduce emissions and how that might affect the quality of the actual performance of the cement? You know, it, uh, that's a good question. Uh, the the trade-offs, the two key ones for the construction industry is the how fast the cement hardens, yeah, and how strong it becomes. And I think both of the the solutions we have in many occasions is the like the solution. It's a it's an overkill that the the, the typical solution. It's like. Uh, you know, I'm trying to uh, to use a tractor to move a 25-gallon bucket. Um, that, that's that's typically what we do. Uh, while you could move the the bucket, you know, using a trolley, uh, a dolly, or you can move it using uh, some other means that is not as heavy uh, as the tractor. And I think that what's happening is because we can't wait, uh, you know, for for long on the uh, to open the road. And we can't wait for long for the material to get strength. Um, 
that that is what is hurting on the trade-offs. Uh, many of those materials could reach similar strength uh, to the current cement. And in many occasions, actually, we might not need that strength. Um, the, the, so the metrics we are using, the specifications we are using, um, generally I'm talking about worldwide, um, are not necessarily uh, developed at the time where we need to, to use less material and less cement. So I think the good revision of this could take care of a lot of the trade-offs. Uh, because in many occasions, we might be giving you a concrete to pour in your uh, driveway that is um, way stronger and way faster to harden than what you really need. Um, right. And I, I think that applies to many, many things. So there are trade-offs, as I said, related to time and strength. Uh, there are trade-offs uh, related to the long-term durability, uh, which is basically the longevity of the material. But many of them, we have technical solutions that can take care of them. Um, and um, wouldn't get a final product not as good as the one we have now, uh, but it's um, it's the issue of the fact that you know we, we need things fast, and we need them to be uh, as strong as we, we we think they need to be. But engineering wise, we could find solutions uh, for this. That's really interesting. So I meant various, you know, economic pressures and other pressures are probably incentivizing, you know, people to use materials that just might be overkill, right, more than they actually need. It is. It is. It is. Many times it's not driven by the need. It is driven by the market. It's driven by, as you said, you know, other factors. Hmm. Interesting. So on a related note, um, can you help us understand, you mentioned uh, some experiments that were done in Brazil in previous years. I'm wondering if there are other large-scale efforts that are currently underway that you're aware of that really try to deploy some of these new technologies, particularly if they're trying to deploy them at scale. Um, and at the same time, I'm wondering about you know their viability in the marketplace. So are is it economically viable to try to use some of these new materials and really make a dent in emissions? There are large efforts. Um, I would say there is a lot of research efforts trying to, to make use of materials like geopolymers. As, I, as we talked about, the biomass is a, a very interesting alternative that's being tried in many countries. Um, the, the largest effort might be happening actually now is, is not on the cement making itself, more than on the carbon capture and storage uh, that you mentioned. And that's basically is trying to realize you know that the fact that uh, if you are going to produce cement even with the um, alternative materials you still are going to produce considerable amount of carbon dioxide so if we can incorporate in the production methods for capturing the carbon storing it and sequestering it after um, for other materials, for use in other construction materials or other materials, or, you know, storing it in, um, in the ground uh, at some, you know, deep formations. Uh, these are the biggest efforts now, the carbon, the carbon capture and storage. And um, I, some of them is, is, is really paying off, and uh, there are some companies and some industries start to grow uh, to do this um, because it, it will help the, car, the cement industry, and it will also help in reducing the carbon dioxide. Um, I, I don't think we are shy of innovations on this area, um, but I think we, we, the, the, we are really shy of implementation and having market uh, for those products. Right. And one of the, you know, 
ways that government might be able to intervene here is uh, trying to support the development of those markets, uh, which brings us to you know another question I wanted to ask about government policy. Um, I know governments have been pretty involved in supporting research and development for some of these technologies. Um, I'm wondering if you also see uh, the need or, or what you see out there in in the marketplace um, of whether governments are being active in supporting the deployment of these new uh, technologies and materials. And if so, you know what what you're seeing that might be particularly promising uh, out there in the world. I think I, I agree with you. I, I, I think the government has been trying to do efforts, in, especially, as you said, in the area of research and development. So there has been, um, you know, moderate funding uh, for the from National Science Foundation, Department of Energy and others and worldwide in Europe as well. And worldwide in, in the area of research for alternative cementing materials and uh, trying to reduce it. But, but the, the problem, as I see, is uh, we're trying to, to reach the moon, yeah? 8% is a very large number and making a dent in it needs a very concentrated efforts. Um, and I, I don't think what is, what's been done is, is that concentrated and, you know, orchestrated efforts. Uh, it is good efforts to develop some of those materials, but, but the, the, the typical way uh, we've seen in the industry or in the research and development uh, sector, which is basically you fund research, that hopefully develops some intellectual properties that can come to uh, some startups and that can uh, come and be, be you know making an industry uh, this is uh, this is very slow and uh, this is um, we don't have a lot of time yeah to get the eight percent down because by 2030 you you could reach or 24 you can reach the one degree uh, celsius increase which is uh, have very dramatic effect so I, I think that there is a need to from from the governments to to um, realize number one that the, you know the, that typical uh, technology development uh, method might not be the most effective. To realize that the, the the way to do this is by by actually in you know coming into play with some uh, interference to to create that economy that would enforce the CO two emission issues. For example, I, I think the government might need to involve a carbon dioxide tax or credit, in other words, uh, into projects. For example, you know, federal government um, uh, buildings could have a tax credit uh, embedding to the projects uh, in the materials. So if you are achieving a carbon tax, uh, a carbon credit, a CO2 credit, you, you could have points in, in the bid. Uh, the, the, there are similar things done years ago in the area of sustainability with, you know, incorporating things like lead, like other measures and metrics for sustainability. I think the government need to, to, to think about this and to uh, think of policies, implement policies uh, for this. Um, might need also to interfere with the cement manufacturing to, so that the CO2 reduction be integral of the business model for cement manufacturing because the amount of CO2 now produced is very high and it need to be, uh, the carbon dioxide need to be uh, reduced. Uh, so I, I think that the government need to interfere to create that um, circular economy that can support new materials that is coming from um, reducing the CO2 emission. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And 
Of course, we're very aware at Resources for the Future of different ways that governments are trying to, to implement uh, those ideas and send those price signals through the market. So it'll be really fascinating to watch. And um, just a quick data point, I was doing a little bit of math while you were speaking and uh, realized that if uh, cement was its own country, it would uh, probably be the third largest emitter uh, of all nations in the world, behind only China and the United States, um, in the neighborhood of all the CO2 emissions from the country of India. Which is huge. Very large. Yeah. yeah. Enormous. So, um, wow. Uh, Mahmoud uh, Taha from the University of New Mexico. There are so many more questions I want to ask you to dig in deeply on this, but hopefully we've whetted our audience's appetite and they can uh, follow up and do more research themselves on this really fascinating topic. Uh, but now I'd like to go to our last question that we ask all of our guests, which is uh, asking you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard uh, that you'd recommend to our audience or something that's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. And I'll start just with a really quick recommendation of some news that came across my screen today. We're recording on August 31st. 2020. And there was just news out of Sweden of the first pilot plant that is producing zero fossil fuel steel uh, from Sweden. And so steel is another part of the economy that's very difficult to uh, fully decarbonize. Uh, but there are new technologies uh, using electricity uh, and other technologies to produce uh, steel with virtually no emissions. So it's really exciting to see that. And it'll be you know, hopeful that we'll see similar developments in the cement world in the years to come. Uh, but how about you, Mahmoud? What's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? Well, I um, there's a number of things, you know, but but I have a very nice uh, book that I recently came across that's not, not in my area, really, but I think it strongly relates to this discussion and to a lot of the thinking I've been recently uh, doing on this topic and the readings is a nice book by uh, two of the uh, Nobel Prize winners in economics in 2019, uh, Banrige and uh, Dufflow from MIT. Yeah. Uh, the nice book, the title of the book is uh, Good Economics for Hard Times. W what I really liked about them is that the, the first of all, the book is not written, you know, I'm not an economist. <laughs> I'm bad in economy, actually, <laughs> in the economic planning. Uh, but it's... Uh, it's about the fact that they are talked to that you know that the normal person, the, the someone who is interested to 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 read and learn about what's happening around us. The book is fascinating; is discussing economics and everything. But they start with an interesting argument, the you know a counter argument of the idea for immigration, for example, when they say you know it's not immigration is not going to be resulting in a reduction in economy. Actually, it makes its own economy. And they actually address the issue of climate change. And what I liked about it is. Their discussion on the fact that um, you know, if if we think that uh, funding R and D, um, which is the typical idea, you know, that the funding R and D is going to get us a solution for the uh, climate change, and we are going to make economic growth, and we also are going to solve the problem, uh, that is um, that is actually uh, a wishful thinking, um, and the fact that you know there is no free lunch, we we got to pay for this, we got to think. How can we create an economy that is uh, based on, you know, less CO2 emission? And as you just said, for the example from Sweden, you know, we can do it. We can create these technologies. Uh, we got to realize it's not going to be uh, cheap. There is going to be a price we are going to pay, uh, but we need to do it for ourselves and for the next generations. Um, so, um, you know, we, we, we need to think how can we do this? And I think there are 
there are a lot of uh, good R&D work starting points and with uh, collective and uh, you know orchestrated efforts i think i think it can be done so that's a fascinating book i i, I really like and i think it's uh, it's a good eye opener for many issues fantastic well that's really interesting and coming from you with your extensive experience on these issues means a lot so um yeah i hope our audience will will check that out um well we'll close it out now uh mahmoud and say thank you once again for joining us on resources radio and helping us understand the basics of cement and the basics of green cement uh we really appreciate your time thank you very much pleasure you've been listening to resources radio Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.